The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthcare.com. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on C. diff Spores and More Global Broadcasting Network. We would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website to learn more about their products, keeping everyone safe. CloroxHealthcare.com forward slash C. diff radio. Today our guests are Drs. Katarina Onetto and Paul Furostat. Over the next 60 minutes, our guest doctors will discuss the definition, diagnosis, and treatments of the various forms of IBS. Both professors and physicians specializing in gastroenterology with a wealth of knowledge and experience treating patients with gastrointestinal symptoms and diagnosis and through ongoing scientific medical research. We welcome the both doctors to our program. Welcome, Dr. Onetto and Dr. Furostat. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Happy to be here today. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules and joining us today on the program and uh, sharing all the information with our global listeners. Um, Dr. Furstat, we're going to lead off. Um, how would you like to define IBS for everybody? Well, first of all, IBS is, is obviously a, an acronym, and it stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. And if we were to define it technically, uh, the best technical definition for irritable bowel is defined by something called the Rome 3 criteria, which is a set of criteria that are used most frequently for, for studies in the irritable bowel syndrome space. And the Rome 3 criteria are defined by three days in the previous month of abdominal discomfort associated with two of three of the following. Change in the form of stool, change in the frequency of stool, or relief of the abdominal discomfort with a bowel movement. However, if you take a step back and you think about those criteria and you were to ask a larger population whether they fulfill them, you might have a lot of people who answer yes to several of those questions, but don't technically identify themselves as having any problems with their bowel habits or their stooling habits. So in practice sometimes, it might not be the most functional definition. Now, one of the things that I've tried to do is I've tried to find an ideal definition, and, and it is fairly challenging. The best definition that I found was that irritable bowel syndrome is a complex interplay between biological and psychological factors with environmental factors, including diet and recent infection, motility disorder, microscopic inflammation, genetics, stress, all being factors, with a recent research focus looking at tryptophan degradation, 
serotonin metabolism, tight junctional support, small bowel microbiome, and large bowel microbiome. But really, what, what does this mean? I've listed off in that definition about nine different potential mechanisms. So what we're really getting at here and what I'm trying to convey to the audience is that irritable bowel syndrome is a syndrome, not a disease. A disease is a process that we as medical practitioners have some insight into the pathophysiology behind. Irritable bowel syndrome is a process that we don't fully understand. And it is most likely or possible that several of those mechanisms that I listed before are actually individual diseases that we don't fully understand and we haven't fully defined right now. So we include them all together into this one process termed IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. Now, there are a couple of different subtypes of IBS. Dr. Forrest, I just made that there's heterogeneity both in the symptoms and probably in the cause of, of IBS. So it's not as simple, and it can be very frustrating both for the patients and for the doctors to deal with a disease that's not fully understood, and maybe there are subsets of patients. Agreed. So within IBS, there's a, a number of subsets, and those subsets include diarrhea predominant, constipation predominant, and a mixed, where if you picture two circles, There's some overlap where patients flip between the two possibilities. Well, Dr. Fierostat and Dr. Neto, thank you so much. Um, We never, I I know, I never realized the potential uh, mechanisms and the several factors that uh, make up the uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, And thank you for also explaining the, you know, word syndrome regarding, uh, you know, versus a diagnosis of disease. And Dr. Neto, how common is IBS? IBS is an extremely common diagnosis. It's very, if you ask any gastroenterologist in, in practice, they will tell you it's either number one or number two in their practice. So for, um, and it's complicated because it's, the diagnosis sometimes is a little tricky. It's based on, as Dr. Foyestad pointed out, on symptoms and not on one particular test that either you test positive or negative, like HIV. You know, so it is, it is very common. It's very underdiagnosed, unfortunately. Uh, our estimation is that probably about 30 to 50 million Americans are affected by it. So it can be a big, a big issue. And regarding the symptoms, the main symptoms, as Dr. Forrest had pointed out, are abdominal pain and a change in the bowel habit. There's one symptom that in my practice, and I'm sure Dr. Forrest has experiences similar to this, that's very, very common and, and patients uh, are pretty uncomfortable with it, and that is bloating. Bloating as abdominal distension and abdominal discomfort is not part of the Rome criteria. We formally define as uh, IBS, but it can be a pretty uncomfortable and important symptom for a lot of our patients. Exactly, and thank you so much, Dr. Onetto, for explaining that. And Dr. Forrestat, how does one acquire IBS? You know, that's a really interesting and important question, and nobody fully understands um, how one acquires IBS or whether it's genetic or whether there is a, another process that's occurring. And as we do more research and we learn more about things like the microbiome and like some of the other mechanisms that I listed before in, in the definition that I, that I put forward, we will hopefully get a better insight into how one, in quote-unquote, acquires IBS. But right now, uh, we don't fully understand it. 
Right. As you said, it could be a multiple of um, underlying causes, correct? Correct. It could be genetic. It could be uh, the tight junctions, the small bowel microbiome, the large bowel microbiome, alterations in those. It could have to do with serotonin metabolism or tryptophan degradation. These are all theories that are being assessed right now and are being targeted with therapies to see how patients with IBS respond. Exactly. And also when one asks the patient how they, when they started to have symptoms, Sometimes one get, can get a little bit of a clue as to what that, how they acquired it, but these are, as Dr. Forsett says, only theories. But, for example, there are patients who will say, I was absolutely fine until, I don't know, August of last year. That's where all my symptoms started after I um, went for a trip and had some sort of gastrointestinal infection, something that's very clear that happened to that patient. Sometimes will tell us something about the physiopathology of that particular Case And then there are other patients who say, you know what, I've had these symptoms my whole life, and so does my mother. And there's probably some sort of genetic component to those patients. So it's important to always remember every patient is different, and um, one cannot put them all together. And I think that that's part of what makes IBS so interesting, but also so uh, frustrating sometimes to deal with for patients not to understand exactly how they got it. Exactly. And Dr. Onetto, we hear, and Dr. Fiorstadt, we, we hear often from patients calling in the hotline uh, that they were fine uh, before, before they acquired a C. difficile infection. And now they're living with this uh, irritable bowel, either not so much constipation, but the diarrhea. So it's, it starts somewhere. And thank you so much for sharing that information. And Dr. Onetto, can you share your techniques and practice diagnosing IBS? I would say diagnosing IBS um, is, generally speaking, I would say this is a clinical diagnosis that one can establish with a combination of uh, taking a good history from the patient, figuring out what their symptoms are, how they started, et cetera, how they, uh, the course of their symptoms, how, when do they improve, when do they get worse, et cetera, and the physical exam, a careful physical exam. Uh, but a lot of times one has to also really make sure that the patient doesn't have something else because these symptoms are not specific to IBS. There's some overlap of symptoms between IBS and other conditions um, that can be um, very treated completely differently, like celiac disease or like inflammatory bowel disease. So uh, a lot of times we do a little bit more testing than just a physical exam and uh, and a history, and we get some uh, blood work, for example, make sure there's no inflammation. Sometimes we get some stool analysis done. Uh, occasionally we'll do a colonoscopy to see if there's any inflammation of the colon that's underlying. Yeah, and, and I, uh, this is Paul Foyer, staff speaking. I um, approach patients in a similar way to, to Dr. Onetto. Um, you know, what's most important and what sometimes gets lost focus on in practice is every patient's unique and you need to listen to the patient's history and what they're telling you and what their symptoms are. And then you need to drive the workup as appropriate for the situation that the patient presents with. Now, there's a couple of exceptions of circumstances where that might not be the case. Um, and these are called alarm symptoms. These are symptoms that kind of raise our antenna a little bit and say, you know what, this patient we need to dig a little bit deeper with. And those include things like anemia, anybody over the age of 50. If somebody is stooling in the middle of the night, they're having bowel movements in the middle of the night, it's awakening them from sleep. That's certainly something that, uh, that we as gastroenterologists typically look deeper into. Rectal bleeding, unintentional weight loss, 
um, anything along those lines uh, would would drive us to say, you know what, there's probably something else going on here, and we need to do an advanced workup. But typically, if a patient's coming in with constipation, you listen to what they have to say, you hear what their symptoms are, you might want to check thyroid studies and you know, do blood counts. If they're over 50, certainly, and they've never had a colonoscopy before, they'd warrant a colonoscopy. Um, but you do the workup that's appropriate for the epidemiology of the individual and the symptoms that present. And then if there are some of these alarm symptoms that I, that I listed before, then you might uh, look a little bit deeper and make sure that you do uh, a really, really comprehensive workup. Well, thank you, Dr. Onetto and Dr. Forstadt, for all that great information. Uh, we are going to take a commercial break at this time. And when we return, we will continue learning more about understanding IBS with Dr. Onetto and Dr. Forstadt. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1-844-4CDF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org. Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. It's a pleasure to reintroduce our guests, Dr. Katarina Onetto and Dr. Paul Forstadt, Joining us today to discuss understanding irritable bowel syndrome, otherwise known the acronym as IBS. Welcome back to the program, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and we're just going to jump right back in here and continue learning more about this diagnosis of IBS. And Dr. Forstadt, what are some medications used to treat IBS-D and their mechanism of action? You know, the, what I was describing before and what uh, Dr. Renato and I were describing before is we don't fully understand 
the exact mechanisms of disease with IBS. So typically, when we treat a disorder or when we treat a disease, we treat the underlying process. So we'll use C. difficile for an example. If we know somebody has C. difficile infection, we will give antibiotics that target C. difficile. It's a bit different with irritable bowel syndrome because we don't know what we're targeting. So what we target with IBS are actually the symptoms. So in diarrhea-predominant IBS, we typically will target the diarrhea, and we will use things like lopiramide or lamotil, which are antidiarrheals. They cut down on the neurologic input to the gut, and it slows down the process. And we feel comfortable using that in this patient group because we typically will have completed a workup to rule out things where that could be counterproductive. And a great example for that is actually C. difficile infection. In C. difficile infection, you do not want to give lopiramide or lamotil because that will slow down the motility or the ability of the colon to push stool forward, and that could lead to more significant complications, such as something called megacolon or potentially an increased risk of mortality. But in patients that have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, we know that, this, that these sorts of medications that control the neurologic input, lopiramide and lamotil, those will actually slow down the gut, but it would be safe for these patients to take them. Now, there's a couple of new things that became available to treat IBSD, diarrhea-predominant IBS, in the last 6 to 12 months. One of them is rifaximin or zifaxin, and the other is aluxadoline. Aluxadoline is viberzy. And these work in different ways, and they work under different theories, fitting with the multiple theories behind where IBSD comes from. Rifaximin is a non-absorbed antibiotic. So if you picture your digestive tract as a hollow tube, this stays within the hollow tube and it alters the bacteria in your small and your large bowel to suppress diarrheal symptoms. Aluxadoline or Viberzy actually works on receptors lining the digestive tract to cut down on the process and the need to move your bowels and the release a fluid into your bowel that stimulates a liquid stool. So as you can see, each of these things have their own mechanisms, and each of these things work in their own way. One final thing that I'll mention is something called Interagam, which is bovine immunoglobulin. And what this is, is this is something that is removed from cows, and it takes their immune system, and it applies it to the digestive tract in humans. And what that does is it promotes less toxins in the gut, it enhances the junctions between the cells, and it decreases microscopic inflammation. And there's some interesting data looking at this in patients with IBSD, as well as peppermint oil, which is a supplement that uh, a lot of people have used for an extended period of time for their diarrhea-predominant IBS as well, and that is uh, sold in the form of IBGARD, which is also something that we use. So as you can see, we have quite a few options to treat patients with IBS. And that's so excellent to know that there are medications and supplements available that are treating this um, diagnosis. And Dr. Forstadt, are there any connections between the microbiome and IBSD, the diarrhea predominant irritable bowel syndrome? 
Yes, we believe there is, and that's why rifaximin is believed to work in certain patients with IBSD. Rifaximin was approved by the FDA last May for the treatment of diarrhea-predominant IBS, and it became famous during the Super Bowl this year when they had an advertisement showing a little colon walking around. But really, we believe that some of the alterations with rifaximin to the microbiome cut down on gas and bloating, but also cut down on the diarrheal symptoms. And that's really good to know, too. And yes, Dr. Ronetto, can you explain mm-hmm. what is small bowel, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, also yes. known the acronym as SIBO, S-I-B-O, and how it is diagnosed and treated? Right. This ties into what Dr. Forrest was talking about, this new medication that we have now available, Rifaximin. Um, we do know that the microbiome is uh, irrelevant in, um, in the cause of IBS. So we know that for a few reasons. One of them is, for example, that IBS in a lot of patients responds to antibiotic treatment. We also know that some patients who have, a lot of patients who have IBS have uh, a, a gut flora that's somewhat different from the normal gut flora. They have decreased levels of some bacteria that we consider to be beneficial, like lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. So there does appear to be a connection between the microbiome and IBS. Um, to what extent that is due to bacterial overgrowth, we don't, we don't know completely yet. But um, what, what you were talking about, Nancy, is, is called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, essentially means as the name implies, that there are just too many bacteria in the small intestine. Uh, that doesn't mean that normally there are no bacteria in the small intestine, but there are a lot more bacteria normally in the colon. So if you have too many bacteria in the small intestine, it gets sort of overwhelmed. It's like having uh, in the building that's built for, for, for a capacity of uh, 500 people to put 5,000 people. So they will produce a lot more stuff, more, uh, more gas, more of other metabolites that are produced by bacteria causing more bloating, possibly more inflammation, abdominal pain, and possibly diarrhea. So that's something that we can actually test for. We can do today a test, a breath test. Um, that's not necessarily the gold standard. The gold standard would be to culture um, the, um, the small bowel itself. But what we can do that's not invasive and not very expensive is to do a breath test uh, to measure the product of the fermentation of the bacteria that live in the small intestine. And what we normally measure are two types of gas. One of them is called hydrogen, and the other one is called methane. And so we just ask the patients to uh, follow a special diet before we test for this condition called SIBO. Um, they follow that diet for just during for one day, the day before the test. And then during the day of the test, they get a baseline check. We see what their baseline production of hydrogen and methane are. And then we give them a type of sugar that can be a couple of types of sugar that one can use, uh, glucose or lactulose. But in any case, we're trying to get the bacteria excited and to measure how much they would ferment when we give them that sugar. And we can, by um, when we see that there's a lot of production of hydrogen or methane after giving them a fermentable sugar, we can see whether or not there are too many bacteria in their small intestine, and that's something that we can also specifically treat. Well, that's wonderful information. And Dr. Onetto, can the um, the breath test be done? Is it is it an outpatient procedure or done in an office? Uh, it can be done in both both ways. In my office, we have a lab where we do this, 
so the patients can have it done there. Uh, that's something that is a little bit more time-consuming, but it's good in some cases we can have better control over the timing. Um, it can also be done in, in an ambulatory uh, way where the patient gets a kit and they can actually do it at home. Well, and I think that's excellent. It's a, it's really great to know all of this is coming forward. Uh, I know that years ago it was really underdiagnosed. A lot of patients that are post-C diff uh, have been um, diagnosed with a SIBO. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. Now, circling back to the IBSD, how do each of you approach therapy for this diagnosis? So what I do is um, I usually will uh, assess the patient and think about what their symptoms are and think about what the most efficacious way I could treat them. I think about the severity of their symptoms, the frequency. I think about what we've used before, what they've received before, and what they might benefit from in the future. So typically, if I have a patient with mild symptoms, I might start them with one of the milder treatments. I usually will start if a patient has diarrhea-predominant IBS, and they are newly diagnosed, and let's say they're in their 20s or 30s, um, I will sit down and present with them the options. And the first couple of options that I present them with are lopiramide or interrogam. And we talk about the risks and the benefits of both of those, of those, both of those, the medication and the medical food. And what we think about together is what might be most applicable and most feasible for the individual to take and what will control their symptoms best. Now, if a patient has moderate symptoms, moderate symptoms, I usually will step it up a little bit or increase the frequency or dosing of those two initial substances. When we get more into the severe group, that's where I start to think about things like Lamotil or Viberzi. Now, Rifaximin, I typically will usually use if a patient has a combination of gas and bloating with diarrhea. That's kind of my area where I think that that has the most efficacy, although I certainly will consider using it in individuals who have moderate symptoms or moderate slash severe symptoms of diarrhea predominance as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Firostat, for that information. And um, Dr. Onetto, how do you approach therapy for IBSD? I think I, I, I certainly try to differentiate between different severities of the patient, the presence also or absence of bloating. The presence of bloating will push me more in the direction of using something like rifaximin uh, that's more specifically targeting fermentation and therefore bloating. I also think it's, it's important a lot of times um, we see patients where we're not the first opinion the patient is getting, we're the third or the fourth opinion. So it's important to see um, what treatments the patient has already received. That sometimes guides us. If a patient says, I received this and that and didn't work or did work, that will help us a little bit in taking the next uh, steps. For most of my patients, I do um, a SIBO breath test at the beginning uh, just to have an idea of whether or not trying to do more of a microbiome management versus a symptomatic management would make sense. Uh, I found that to be useful, particularly in the more severe cases, to know from the very beginning if and this, this has not been studied specifically in the, what I, what, the study that I would like to have uh, that maybe Dr. Foyser and I could do in the future mm-hmm. would be to see if a positive SIBO breast test is predictive of a good response to rifaximin in patients who have diarrhea-predominant IBS. We don't know that just yet, and it's not entirely clear 
that rifaximin only acts by decreasing the uh, number of bacteria in the small intestine. Apparently, there are other mechanisms that are also implied, but one could make that assumption. I mean, that's that's something that we are, for for the time being, assuming in part is that uh, if we check a patient who is diarrhea-predominant IBS and for SIBO and they are positive, they may be more likely to respond to antibiotics. Exactly. And the thought of, uh, you know, beginning a research or a study in regards to your approaches is a fantastic idea. Uh, it's, um, like I said, it's great to know that um, SIBO is being diagnosed and um, being thought about more today than it was eight years ago. Uh, there are a lot of post-C. diff patients um, now being uh, diagnosed with this, and and that's, uh, by using the um, Zyfaxim is also helping alleviate a lot of their symptoms. So it's really good to know all of this. But at this time, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue learning more about understanding IBS with Dr. Zonetto and Feuerstadt. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Join us on September 20th in Atlanta, Georgia for the fourth annual International Raising C. diff Awareness Conference and Health Expo. Visit the C. diff Foundation website at cdifffoundation.org for event details or contact the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 for additional information. Again, the website is cdifffoundation.org. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. We're back, and thank you for joining us today with our guests, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Feuerstadt, here to discuss understanding IBS. And welcome back to the program, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, it was wonderful before the commercial uh, to have that nice conversation and discussion in regards to IBSD and the SIBO diagnosis. And Dr. Ronetto, are there any successful dietary methods being implemented in controlling the symptoms of IBSD at this time? 
sure. Um, there, there are a few things regarding diet. I think that diet plays a significant role. Sometimes we as, as physicians um, tend to focus a little bit too much on medications and not so much on lifestyle modifications and diet, which I think for in particular for, for IBS uh, are really important. In some patients, it, just getting a history will help us with this. Some patients will tell us that there are particular triggers, that gluten or uh, lactose-containing foods or sugary things or fruits uh, make them more bloated or make them have more abdominal pain. If I have something like that where the patient seems to have some idea about triggers, then I will uh, test specifically for sugars that I think may be malabsorbed. And uh, one can order, for example, lactose breath test, fructose breath test, uh, sucrose, that's sugar, it's uh, like table sugar, breath test, and see if there's a specific intolerance that's at least contributing to the patient's symptoms. Sometimes there's no such thing. Sometimes the patient says, you know what, it doesn't matter what you eat, uh, what I'm eating, it, I am bloated, I have pain, and I have diarrhea, or, uh, or constipate, well, in this case, diarrhea, uh, all the time. So I can't really pinpoint um, what, what specific foods are causing that. For those patients, I think a very good diet, and probably the one that we have uh, that's been researched best, is called the low FODMAPS diet. This is F-O-D-M-A-P. Um, this stands for low fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. But in short, it has to do with fermentable sugars. How much, it has to do with the reduction of those fermentable sugars. We want these patients to not have a diet where they're feeding, I tell the patients not to feed the monster. So essentially what we're trying to do is just reduce certain things. It doesn't mean that there's going to be no fermentable sugars in that diet, but just a reduction of those sugars. There's a very good app that I sometimes uh, recommend patients to the patients that's from a university in Australia called the Monash University, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a fairly easy-to-use app. Uh, and I have the patients start on this diet, but with the understanding that this is not a diet for life, though. This is a very limiting diet. Uh, I think it's a good diet to start. People sometimes call it a, like a learning diet or a training diet because once the patient is feeling better on the diet, what we want to do is to expand it to liberalize it gradually and to the extent that that's tolerated. And I think that it's also useful in terms of not just making the patient feel better, but also help them identify triggers. Because once the patient is no longer uncomfortable and bloated and the symptoms have improved significantly, when they do a very gradual, very systematic reincorporation of foods, let's say one food a week, they can actually tell if that food is making a difference as opposed to when a patient is symptomatic and they're having all foods and all symptoms at all times, it becomes almost impossible to identify triggers. So organizing the diet, I think, is, is an important step in the treatment of IBS. And that was a wealth of information, Dr. Onetto, and thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. Um, you know, the FODMAP, uh, what was the university again? In Australia? It's Monash University. It's M-O-N-A-S-H. Wonderful. Okay, There's that's so good to book, know. Um, that's called The Complete Low FODMAPS Diet, uh, written by Dr. Gibson and Dr. Sue Shepard from that same university. So, again, the name of the book is The uh, Complete Low FODMAPS Diet. They have it, I think, on Amazon. 
Wonderful. Okay, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm sure that will be uh, taken into consideration by our listeners. And um, we understand that there is the IBS diarrhea, which was discussed earlier in the program. And that there is also the constipation predominant IBS. Uh, Dr. Feuerstadt, what are some medications used to treat the IBS-C and their mechanism of action? Okay, well, we have uh, you know, quite a few options for treatment of IBS-C, or constipation-predominant irritable bowel syndrome. And those include polyethylene glycol, which is uh, normally known as Miralax. You can use fiber. You can use lubiprostone or linactylide, and those are Amatiza and Linzess. So the way that these work are, are in fairly diverse ways. Fiber is... Uh, it takes the form of Metamucil, Fiber 1, Benafiber, Citrusil, any one of those things. And fiber bulks your stool, but also keeps you more regular and acts as a, as a laxative. And I typically recommend the patients who have IBSC who don't have gas and bloating, because fiber does certainly cause gas and bloating, uh, that they take a fiber supplement. And the goal would be about 30 grams of fiber total a day, 25 to 30 grams of fiber a day. Um, so typically I recommend about 5 to 10 grams take the form of a fiber supplement, and then the rest come in, your, in a dietary form. Now, Miralax, or polyethylene glycol, is a gentle laxative. It's a good laxative to use for IBSC because it's not habit-forming. So if a patient were to stop it, they just revert back to where they were before, as opposed to some other options for laxatives where patients can get habituated to it and get reliant on it. And then if they were to stop, they'd be in a worse situation or worse off. And polyethylene glycol is a stool softener and a regulator. Lubiprostone and linactylide, amatiza and linzess, they actually work on receptors lining the bowel that stimulate fluid release and that stimulates uh, a bowel movement. So as you can see, each thing has a different mechanism of action to try to achieve the same goal. And everybody is different, correct, Dr. Feuerstadt? Yes, everybody is different. It's all about listening to patients and listening to what their symptoms are and choosing the right choice for them. Exactly. And thank you so much for sharing that information. And Dr. Onetto, are there any connections between the microbiome and IBS-C? I would say yes. Um, I, this is, brings us back a little bit to our conversation about SIBO. Uh, when we measure the, the, those two types of gas that we were talking about in a patient's breath, hydrogen and methane, there, is, there seems to be an association between, patient, between constipation and high levels of methane. Um, it, so it does uh, appear that in some patients one can treat uh, constipation predominant IBS by treating, by trying to modify that person's gut flora. Right now, what, um, what is being used, uh, by, by, by doctors who have an interest in the microbiota is actually a combination of antibiotics to try to reduce the number of those organisms that produce methane, which is the one associated with constipation. Uh, these organisms are particularly resilient, though. Uh, they are actually not even bacteria. They're what we call archaea, which are older organisms, one of the oldest life forms. Uh, and they're tough to kill, and they tend to come back. But still, I have seen pretty good results in trying to treat these patients with a combination of uh, rifaximin and neomycin. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Oneto, for sharing that information, too. We appreciate that. And how do, Dr. Forrestat, um, I'm going to lead off with you. How do you um, approach the treatment for IBS-C? Well, I approach it in a similar way to IBSD, which is, again, listening to the patient and hearing what they're telling you and what their symptoms are and the severity. And then I work my way up kind of the severity scale. So typically, if a patient has just very, very mild symptoms, but it's something that's impeding in their lifestyle, I will start with some fiber supplementation and see how they do with that. If they have mild to moderate symptoms, I'll do fiber and polyethylene glycol or Miralax and titrate accordingly, meaning that I'll start with one capsule once daily of the Miralax, which is 17 grams, uh, and I will see how they respond to that. And then as we get more severe, we go to some of the more potent uh, options for, for patients, including Amatiza, Linzest, Lubiprostone, Linactolide. And in those situations, we usually will start one or the other. I don't regularly combine therapies. I try to keep patients on one simple therapy to, to have a single effect as opposed to multiple therapies together. Okay, and Dr. Onetto, how do you approach the therapy for IBS-C? I would say very similarly to Dr. Feuerstadt. He mentioned all the main uh, drugs that one can use for this. There are also some dietary things that one can do, and some patients, just by taking a history, one can tell the patient's not having enough fiber, not enough hydration, not enough exercise. All those things are really important, things that have to do with the patients with lifestyle modifications. And uh, they have to, you have to have, though, a patient who is um, interested in, in following. That's why I think in general for IBS, in general for, for taking care of any patient, but it's really important to have the buy-in of the patient, have them uh, very involved in the treatment. I think diet can be very helpful in terms of adding fiber and water. There are also some foods. I think Dr. Foyerstead tweeted something recently about kiwis being helpful. So I've been telling all my patients to have two kiwis a day, <laughs> great source of vitamin C and also very good for constipation. And there are other things like chia seeds and flax seeds uh, that can also be helpful. I tell my patients to soak seeds in water uh, overnight and then add them in the morning to their yogurt or their oatmeal. And that seems to also help them uh, have more regular bowel movements. Okay, and that's wonderful information, too, for dietary. And we're going to pause at this time for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue learning more about understanding IBS with Drs. Onetto and Furostat. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll free 1 844 4 CDF. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. 
because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more, Global Broadcasting Network. And thank you for joining us today with our guests, Dr. Carolina Onedo and Dr. Paul Fjordstadt, discussing understanding IBS. Welcome back to the program, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and before our commercial break, we were discussing the IBS constipation. Well, moving right along, Dr. Frostat, can you share with our listeners how each uh, how you manage mixed irritable irritable bowel syndrome? So, Nancy, that, that's a really important question because patients with mixed irritable bowel syndrome actually have cycling of their bowel habits. So sometimes they'll have some diarrhea, and sometimes they'll have constipation. And sometimes they'll actually mix, you know, several times during the week versus having a month of one versus a month of the other. So the way that I handle this with patients is I talk to the patients and I try to, quote, get ahead of the curve or get ahead of the wave. So if a patient predominantly is having a bit more of diarrhea, then I'll treat them for constipation, but I'll treat them in a very mild to moderate way. So you soften the one symptom while keeping in mind that they could flip the other way because you don't want to put them into a severe exacerbation in the other direction. So the patients with, with constipation, I will put on something like Miralax polyethylene glycol, and I will put them on a half a dose once daily to see how they respond. And the goal would be to level out their bowel habits. And it's the same way in the opposite direction. So if somebody is having diarrhea predominance, I will put them on, let's say, uh, lopiramide or interrogam, but I'll give them half of the dose that I would have previously. So with lopiramide, I'd give them one tablet every other day or even every third day as opposed to one tablet daily. So I titrate the medications to soften the response to level everything out. And I find that if there's a dynamic process between the physician and the patient where the patients are presenting, I usually see patients once a month originally to get them leveled out when they have mixed IBS. Usually between the dialogue and the frequency of visits, we're able to find a regimen that is able to level everything out and you avoid the significant exacerbations on either side. Wonderful. And it, it seems like it's, it is um, per person and per symptoms and very individualized, tailored to each person's and each patient's needs, correct? Yes, Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I would argue that this is the toughest type of IBS to treat 
because patients who have diarrhea every day are very excited when they stop having diarrhea. You give them medication that will stop them from going to the bathroom six times a day, and they're happy. Or the other way around also. Patients who go to the bathroom once a week are also going to be pretty satisfied when they start going every day or every other day. But the mixed type is the toughest one to treat, I would say, because you don't want to send the diarrhea patient into constipation land or the other way around. So I would say what I try to do is to do something similar to what Dr. Feuerstedt uh, described and sometimes also use antibiotics because antibiotics have less of that risk of sending the patient from one extreme to the other one. They tend to, uh, tend to normalization of the uh, bowel habit rather than extremes. Okay, and doctors, are probiotics useful with patients diagnosed with either or, or, you know, either the diarrhea or the constipation or mixed IBS? I would say I use probiotics um, not very often, but sometimes. And unfortunately, with probiotics, it's hard to predict which one is going to work for which patient. In patients who have bloating, I've had a pretty good experience with uh, a probiotic called Align. Um, and, but there, it's a hit or miss kind of thing. A lot of times the patients that come to see a gastroenterologist have already tried different probiotics and they already know which ones have worked and which ones have not. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Dr. Foy said? What, what probiotic is your favorite one you go to? Um, you know, for, for diarrhea predominance, I typically will put patients on uh, probiotics. I will put them on either a line, bifidobacterium, Florosaurus saccharomyces boulardii, or culturel. Lactobacillus. So obviously, I'm giving you the trade name and and what is in it uh, in that list. Those three I found to be to have, and this is anecdotal, not data driven, but th- those three I found to have some ability to help these patients. Specifically, though, to echo your point, Dr. Arnetto, the patients that have gas and bloating, I typically will use a line, which is Bifidobacterium, and I find that that really does have a significant impact on that that patient population. For a constipation predominant population, I typically don't necessarily recommend probiotics themselves, but what I will recommend is that the patients uh, have yogurts and things like that. So, you know, some of the yogurts have are fiber supplemented, so it is kind of a probiotic in a way, but it also has fiber supplementation. So I typically recommend that they take uh, a yogurt either once a day or once every other day, and I found that that has had a significant impact on the, their quality of life and the frequency of their stools. Well, thank you so much for that information, too. And the probiotics uh, is a supplement, and, and it's always good to know which ones work with, you know, which different diagnosis. And Dr. Furostat, is IBS dangerous? Very important question. Um, IBS is not dangerous, or at least we don't believe it to be dangerous. This is not a diagnosis that leads to cancer. This isn't a diagnosis that leads to any sort of a scary end point, it's dangerous in a sense that it significantly impacts people's lives. The effect on our population, I mean, in an industrial, in an industrialized nation, it's estimated that up to 15% of the population has IBS. And in a gastroenterologist practice, it could be anywhere from 20 to 30% of the patients that we see. So when we talk about impact on, on society, it has a massive impact on society. And that in itself could be dangerous because we're losing people who want to be in the workforce, people who want to lead a normal life, and those individuals are being hindered by this. So in that sense, it can be dangerous, but there isn't any medical nature to this that's dangerous. 
Okay, and well, that's really good to know, too. And um, Dr. Furostat and Dr. Onetto, before we close today's program, would you both like to take a moment and share your closing comments with our listeners? Sure. So IBS is something that really impacts a, a large portion of the population, and it's really important to find a practitioner, a provider, who listens and who is able to connect with you. So when you meet with a provider, you need to feel comfortable with them and comfortable telling them what is going on and what specifically your goals of treatment are. So we've listed a lot of different therapies. Some of them are dietary. Some of them are straight medications. Some of them are medical foods. What, we're, what I think is most important with the management of IBS is the connection that the patient feels with the provider and the ability to be flexible in your therapy. So if something isn't working, you move on to the next thing. But if something is working, being willing to either go up on the dose if possible or changing the frequency so that you can meet that happy medium. Whenever I have a patient with IBS, I always say to them, look, our goal is to optimize, to get you comfortable, to get you back to your quality of life. We as practitioners can't promise everything being perfect, but optimization is really key. And I think that's a real important goal for the provider and the patient together. Absolutely. The doctor-patient relationship is so important in IBS, as in every other disease, but I think in IBS in particular. And the other thing that I would say as a closing thing is we, have, we know more about IBS than we did, let's say, 10 years ago. The medications alone that have been approved recently have been tremendously helpful, I think. And the more we understand about how this, the origin of this disease, we will understand the different subsets of patients that are likely to respond to different therapies and maybe be able to predict more clearly which patient will respond to probiotics, which patient will respond to antibiotics, which patient will respond to another therapy. Uh, right now, there's a lot of trial and error, and that's part of the reason that we need to have this working relationship that's very important with the patient. Absolutely. And Dr. Onetto and Dr. Forrestat, um, we thank you here at CETA Foundation and the Seat of Spores and More program. We thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule today and joining us here today. Um, and the information that you have shared is greatly appreciated, I know, by our global listeners and by all of us today. Um, we, we please join us every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time as we discuss up-to-date information with topic experts and organizations focused on C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety products, and much more. Once again, we thank our official sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Please visit their website, cloroxhealthcare.com, C-O-M, forward slash C. diff. We send out our get well wishes to all the patients being treated for and recovering from C. diff infections and all wellness draining illnesses all across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corella, and until next week, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We thank you for joining us this week on C. diff spores and more global broadcasting network. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.
C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthcare.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.